A single footstep changes all the future steps that an American Marine on patrol in Afghanistan would ever take. After triggering an IED and losing his right leg below the knee, our guest Eric McIlvaney turned to uncharted territory. Having never completed a single triathlon or even a running event for that matter, he challenged himself to complete an Ironman. With the help, love, and support from his family, friends, and the Challenged Athletes Foundation, Eric has fought through obstacles, logged thousands of miles, and achieved more than he ever thought possible. Did he succeed in finishing an Ironman? Well, you'll just have to listen and find out. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlings Podcast. I am your host, Troy Busso, coming to you from the sunny hills of Broomfield, Colorado. It's December 18th, 2020, and this is episode 21. How's it going, Eric? I was doing great. Thanks for having me on. Indeed. Excited. Thanks for being here today. We have Eric McIlvenny today on the podcast. Eric, you are a, um, you came to us um, through, we reached out to some folks um, about looking for some special stories out there, and you were hooked up with us through Challenged Athletes Foundation. You're a below-the-knee amputee who uh, sort of took the ball and ran as far as uh, building an endurance athletics career um, upon your rehab, and we're going to dive into all of that today. Uh, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And yeah. I'm, I'm really appreciative of the Challenge Athletes Foundation for for hooking us up. Yeah, likewise. I I, I, I know a little bit. I've been to the dinner um, in New York a couple of times in the past, and you, you certainly get a good sense for what they're all about. And um, I uh, had the honor of sitting with a couple of um, athletes at dinner and got their stories, but I'm really, really um, excited to kind of sit down with you, talk about what Challenged Athletes Foundation has done and meant for you, um, but really more more than that is just kind of dig into your journey and talk about you know some of the trials and tribulations you've been able to overcome to notch some pretty impressive times and some pretty epic races. <laughs> All right. Cool. Let's get into it. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, below the knee amputee, um, this all came from a, um, you, your stint in the Marines. So you started out, um, well, the, this story starts with you, uh, as a Marine, uh, in Afghanistan. So going back before then, let's just talk just kind of, um, growing up. So what led you to, I guess your kind of your athletic background, but then also what led you into the military? So where was your, what, what was your, your upbringing like? Yeah, it's just, we're very, uh, I have a very close knit family, two older sisters, and we were all very into sports. And I think that's a big part of it. One was just the, uh, um, being part of a team, uh, being competitive, being athletic. And, um, uh, two, I was, I was introduced It's actually kind of funny in the eighth grade, I had to do a homework assignment, a career research report. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't know. And one one of the rules were was that you weren't allowed to to do this report on being a professional athlete. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, this is my first five choices right there. <laughs> and uh, I went home and asked my parents, and my dad suggested the military. And was he like, military? Uh, he he was. He okay. was in the navy for an enlistment. And my grandfather was in the army. Uh, he fought in Korea. Okay. And um, yeah, I don't know. He just kind of threw that out there. He's like, yeah, why don't you check out the military? And then he said, Marines are first to fight. And that just sounded great to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I did that report and then I was sold. Wow. I, I was like, wow, this is because, you, you know, I dug into the history and 
um, learn about some of the heroes and valor. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to yeah. be a Marine when I grow up. That, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Semper Fi from then on. <clears throat> yes. Did you, um, was that kind of your first exposure to like, was, was your family very, um, you know, like with Memorial days and, and things like that, was it, was the military a, a thing that was front and center in your, in your family? Or was that like your first big exposure to it? Or was that was more my casual? First big exposure. Okay. Was, so my, my grandfather, he actually, he, um, he, he never talked about his experiences in Korea. Yeah. And I think because of that, it's just, I never knew to ask the questions and he has since passed away. Um, but just a, a really cool man. And after, after he, he had passed, that's when we found out that he had earned two bronze stars. And, um, he, it was just one of the things he didn't talk about. And then wow. I knew very little about my, my dad's enlistment. It was just, I don't know. It was kind of gonna, it was going to be my thing. Yeah. And my, I have, a, I have two older sisters. One is one year older than me. Like I said, both are athletes, but the one that's one year older than me, she actually beat me to the punch and she joined the air national guard and, um, yeah, she was in the air force for wow. a handful of years. And then I kind of followed in and then I married a, a, a Navy. I married into, into the Navy as well. So oh. our family has become very military centric, I guess. Oh, good. Well, thank you all for your service. That's great. Oh, you're welcome. <clears throat> so, like looking back on your grandpa, did, I mean, knowing what you know now, that's obviously there's got to be kind of like, man, I'm kicking myself for not not opening up. Or do you think he would have opened up? Probably. Yeah, right? I, I think he may have after I had some experiences, but um, I don't know. I guess I wish I would have had the opportunity to sit down and talk to him about it. And I don't know, maybe he, like that his generation didn't really talk about their experiences as much. Yeah. So I understand that, but um, yeah, my, I'd be very interesting. My, my grandfather was a, a, a fighter pilot in World War II, and it was oh. just kind of always one of those things that we didn't discuss. And I remember my brother, uh, you know, as we were getting a little bit older and the, you know, the bourbon was flowing around the card table and stuff, my brother kind of dug into it. And everybody was sort of like, I think a little like holding their breath, like how's grandpa going to, and, and he just kind of opened up and told us some great little stories. Didn't, you know, didn't get too deep. Um, but shared some fun stories about well, fun stories, but you know, good stories of his, um, of his time in service. So, yeah, I don't know. yeah. yeah. That's special. so, so what was your athletic background? You mentioned you pretty athletic family. Were you an endurance athlete? Were you, uh, were you uh, thinking about your first, uh, uh, triathlon years later at the time? I, I definitely was not. <laughs> I didn't. Under, I actually didn't understand why anyone would run for. Yeah. Why would you just run to race? Yeah. Like why you like carry a ball into an end zone or run around the bases? We just we, we played ball sports, you know, yeah. football, baseball, basketball, whatever it was. Um, so any running that I was doing was to try to get faster, to get my yeah. forty faster, so I can run a better route, or you know, that's that's the case. So never never endurance sports, but um, always sports in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even eight years into your career now, I look at pictures of you, you're, you're, you don't look like, you know, your typical kind of Chris McCormick type of Ironman, you know, a uh, hundred and, you know, whatever, 40 pounds. I mean, you're a bigger guy. So it's, it's good to see you out there. Uh, uh, I mean, hitting some really good times. I mean, it's impressive. You don't move like a big man. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so you enter, uh, the Marines, you're going in any notion at this point, like what, what do you, as you look forward in your career, is this something where you're like, I'm going to go do 
my three years or two years um, or, or however long you had signed up for and then kind of move on to bigger and better things? Or how were you looking at your your service going in? Yeah, I guess I, I mean, I, I pictured possibly career. Okay. I didn't know exact, exactly what I was getting into. But so the, the route that my wife and I took into the military was through the United States Naval Academy. So we went to school for four years. So like already we're kind of military school. And I knew that I would coming out of the Naval Academy, you owe five years of service. So that's already going to be nine years of my life. And then, um, yeah, just the way it worked, I ended up serving seven years after graduation. Okay. So So, um, that first in mentality of the Marines, and then you go into kind of, you know, officer, uh, more the officer track, was that, was there a divergence there, just a better opportunity or where, like, were you hoping to be more infantry fighting soldier or, I mean, I know it's not infantry in the, in the Marines, but were you, um, you know, like where, where were you hoping to take the career? Uh, we're certainly a country at war by then. So, uh, you, yeah. you knew pretty well what you were getting into. Yeah. You know, I just, I pictured myself just from watching commercials on television <laughs> with the <laughs> are uh, of and and you did say it right in the in the marine corps you have the infantry okay and you have a ton of other specialties that kind of support that infantry um so i i've always pictured myself as the infantry the guy in the front lines you know whatever sleeping in the dirt like that's that's just where i i wanted i wanted to be and um my plan was just out of high school to go and it was actually my grandfather who he was the, he was the um the soldier in the army in korea who he just threw out that suggestion because at that time i was doing well in sports and doing really well in school because my mom made me do well in school in order to play sports so it just went hand in hand and my grandpa he said hey you know what you should check out the Naval Academy because when you graduate there, you can become a Marine. That's your goal, right? Uh, and you become a Marine officer. You can keep playing sports. I'm like, oh, okay. And you, you get a great education, you know, a good engineering school. And um, I just, I've always been fortunate to have people in my life that um, uh, I've been able to listen to. And yeah, it sounds like it. Out there, uh, I was like, yeah, that I don't know any better right now. I was like, that's that's what I want to do. And it was actually, I did one year of prep school after high school and before the Naval Academy, and that was 2001. So September 11th, 2001, yeah. I was at the Naval Academy prep school. Okay. And that, and it's like, wow, this decision just got very real. We will be a country at war. And by the time I graduated the Naval Academy in 2006, you know, we were, now we were in, in, at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that whole time there, we knew we were going to graduate and we were going to, we we're going to yeah. go over and fight. Yeah. And I think, I mean, over the years, over the decades, since 2001, since 9-11 happened, the, um, I don't know that the narrative has changed, but I think for, for those listening who weren't really old enough to experience that, the level of just raw patriotism and, um, I don't know, just fight that, you know, most people had in them to go and right the wrongs of 9-11 were, was so strong. Um, so were you looking at it at that moment? Like, um, like I'm the right man in the right place at the right time kind of thing. Almost. (laughs) I, I was looking at it like, uh Oh, I'm in school and I still have four years left of school. 
And my, my best friend from high school, his name is Lou Fisher. He enlisted in the Marine Corps right out of high school. And I'm like, man, he was going to boot camp in like two months. And, um, I, I guess I wanted to be there with him. Got it. And yeah. I was, I even had conversations with people. Like, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to quit this Academy dream and, and go enlist and get over there as quick as I can. And I, I had, uh, I had someone sit me down and say, you know, like this, this war on terror, it's going to be around for a long time. Got it. Stay the track, like stay, stay in school, continue, like not, not many people get this opportunity. It's hard to get an appointment to the Naval Academy. You got it. Take advantage of it. And then I promise you that you're going to get your opportunity to go and, and do your part. And um, yeah, I, I stuck the path. Yeah, it certainly says something about you and your character that you were that you were admitted to the Naval Academy to begin with. So I think that's a um, it kind of paints a picture of who you are as a as a person at this point in your life that you got the appointment. So congrats on that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So you you end up graduating, obviously. Did you is that you said that's where you met your wife? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Best okay. thing that happened to me at the Naval Academy. <laughs> we were both studying mechanical engineering, so oh, I would just sit next to her and copy off her paper. No, I'm just kidding. Smart. Do that. <laughs> now it's um, yeah, we fell in love. Things happened really quick. Life went in fast motion. Um, we graduated as commissioned an officer in the Marine Corps. We um, we started our family. We we got married and had our first child. Moved out to the West Coast, both with like brand new careers, and started deploying. So, um, just fat, a lot happened really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Chaos. So then you end up, you end up in, in, um, Afghanistan or was that, were all three of your tours in Afghanistan or did you go? Yeah, uh, okay. Just my third one. My first okay. one was Southeast Asia. Uh, second one was Middle East, like Kuwait, Jordan, uh, on and off ship. And then third one was a straight flyover to Afghanistan. Okay. So you're in Afghanistan. Um, are you thinking, uh, is this going to be maybe your last tour? Are you, where are you at uh, service wise? Have you done your five years yet? Are you in your fifth year? Or which year are you in? Yeah, I was, uh, I guess I was at, yeah, I was over five years. Okay. Because I did, well, I was kind of at, at the five year mark. But the okay. way it worked was as, so as an infantry officer, um, what, what generally was happening at that time was you would go to your unit and do two deployments with them uh, or three years and then rotate to um, what we called like a, a B billet, which was more um, stateside, non-deployable unit. Okay. And it was like, as soon as I, I rotated out, um, I think a couple months went by and I was um, just helping out at the School of Infantry and an opportunity to go back to my old unit to deploy to Afghanistan presented itself. And um, I, I jumped on it. Okay. I actually, I had to send my wife an email because she was deployed. And I said, hey, Rachel, can you call me? Because it wasn't easy to communicate back and forth when she was on her ship. But uh, I said, can you call me as soon as you can? I <laughs> I have a request. I had to run this up the chain of command to get my boss to sign off. Indeed, right? indeed. And she called me and she's like, yeah, I take it. Jump, go, go for it. You know, okay. I support you. And, um, yep, and then I got to go to Afghanistan. Okay. Very good. So you're over in Afghanistan and, <clears throat> um, what are the circumstances under which, uh, you end up stepping on an IED? So I, I was working directly with the Afghan national army. Okay. Uh, I, I had a small team. We were, we were an embedded training team. So embedded into an Afghan unit and we were advisors and we were, um, operating in 
one of the districts alongside a Marine company. So a group of Marines, and we were just trying to, um, build the, the safety and the security of the village and surrounding villages. So we'd go on our little missions and patrols to push out and um, try to establish the Afghan government and the presence in, in these villages where there were a lot of top Taliban. Okay. So we, I was on a patrol one morning and that was, that was the patrol that, um, at the day that my, my life changed. What's the, what's the heightened sense of awareness at this point? Are you, are you actively engaged in combat daily, weekly, monthly, or is it pretty slow or, or kind of where's your head at uh, in terms of it being on a swivel when you get over there at this time? Yeah, it, it was, um, it was pretty on a swivel. I would say like active combat, um, I guess what you would think of in the movies, maybe that's more like weekly when you're okay. trading and fire, but every, you know, every day we would go on a patrol or multiple patrols, whether we were in a vehicle or mostly walking around and anytime you're outside of that base, like your one, your base isn't extremely safe. It can, you know, it's, it felt very safe compared to everything else. But when you walk outside of that base, um, the, the threat of IEDs and, um, possible ambushes and just anyone looking at you could be a bad guy dressed up in good regular clothing. Um, it was, um, your head was always on a swivel. Like you, you were always, you always felt, um, that, you know, there's danger right around the corner. Okay. So certainly a heightened sense. And so how, um, I'm, when you, when, so you're on this patrol, you like, how do you end up, do they build these bottlenecks in? I mean, these are like, how big, how big is the, is an IED when you're one that you stepped on, for instance? So the one that I stepped on was probably, I mean, if you, I guess you picture, um, maybe like a, about a a milk jug, smaller, a little bit smaller than a milk jug. And we were in a farming district. So, uh, a lot of the IEDs were made out of these jugs with homemade explosive in them. So you take that that's buried in the ground Mm -hmm. and then it has to be initiated. So there's probably, um, like a pressure, a piece of wood pressure plate sitting on top of it with the wires going to that jug. Uh, and the pressure plate, I don't know, maybe, in between a half of a foot to a foot, um, where it's, yeah, it's basically when you step on it, you're going to connect a circuit between two pieces of metal that ignites the blasting cap, which ignites the explosive. So that's all hidden in the ground. And, and they were, they were a lot of the time, I mean, the Taliban would put it in, but they would also sometimes force villagers to put them into the ground. Um, and they're, they were just good at it. (laughs) some of them were easy to detect and some of them were very, very hard to detect. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't see the one that I stepped on. So they're, all. so they're either really good at placing them because this sounds almost like a needle in a haystack. I mean, you're talking about a, you know, a big area, obviously, um, even in a village size thing, but there's, I mean, if these things are basically the size of a dinner plate that you have to step on, they're either all over the place or they're really good at guessing where you guys are going to walk. Right. Oh yeah. They're, they, they're very good at knowing where we're going to walk. And that's one reason, like you never set a pattern. You try not to, if you're going to go out one route, you come back a different route. You just try not to do that. But there are some areas, uh, and like, I think, like you said, there's a bottleneck. It's like, okay, we kind of have to go this way unless we want to climb a mountain. Like it's just, 
it's like we're gonna go this way so this this could be a place um so i mean that's where they would focus their effort okay. maybe put a couple around those areas okay so how many guys are out on patrol uh with you on this particular day so this day it was myself and my corpsman mike shrum like he, he's our medic and um we had about 10 afghan soldiers with us okay. and then there was also um two squads of marines and uh, about you know, 13 Marines, two, two of those squads. Okay. And we were out there patrolling through this village. Okay. So around um, 40 of you all together ish in, in that range. So yeah. does anything feel like, is there, do you have any looking back, any sense of foreboding or is this like, uh, you're walking along on a, on a sunny day, one moment and the next thing, you know, you're, you're on your back. Yeah, no, there, there were signs. One, we were in a little bit of a, a dangerous area, a new area that we hadn't spent much time in and um we knew that there were going to be ieds and possible ambush and that that they didn't want us there so uh you already have that heightened sense of of awareness and that's yeah, even it's even more heightened at that point um and then actually when, while we were walking and uh we, we finished our patrol um and as we were leaving a village and we were going to cross some open ground back to where our, our patrol base was, we found a little piece of yellow plastic. And that's, you know, that jug that I explained, yeah. those jugs are made out of yellow and uh, this yellow plastic that um, we knew that that came from another IED. Okay. And it's another thing that they do when they use an IED and it works and it, and it gets someone and it's in that right spot they'll use that same spot again. Wow. So we kind of knew like, uh-oh, there's, there was one IED. Um, there probably is another one right around here. Let's search. And I actually, I went off with some of the Afghan soldiers back into the village to try to find some of the local people and ask them what they knew about it. And in that area, all of the, the compounds, which like the mud compounds, which is their houses, um, they were abandoned. So it's like, okay, that's kind of a second red flag. Yeah. The villagers obviously knew something was gone and, um, we couldn't find it. So we ended up getting a grid coordinate and marking that area and we were going going to leave. And, um, that's when I, I got back on what I thought was the cleared path. Cause that's one thing as we're patrolling, someone is clearing a path Got it. and everyone else is when we're in a dangerous area, walking on that path. And I must not have been on that path. <laughs> I must have missed that path because I, I, as I was walking north, I just, I stepped on it and um, a big surprise and um, it detonated. Wow. So is this a detonation? Were you like, how fortunate are you to be alive? Was it like a jug size thing? I mean, it, was it sort of designed to just mess you up or was it designed to kill and it just didn't do its job? Now, I, I think, well, this one could go either way, but okay. those are more um, more designed to mess you up. It's uh, a lot of times what we were seeing was one very big IED, maybe a couple jugs or even uh, something, just something larger that could damage a vehicle. Okay. And then around that, there would be some smaller ones. And we, we called them toe poppers. <laughs> and I was actually on the ground when I, yeah. I heard, um, the Sergeant, Sergeant Tina Harrow, he, he, he said, Captain Mac, because my last name is McElvenny. No one says that. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's 
my name was Captain Mac. I heard him over the radio saying, Captain Mac stepped on a toe popper. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that was more than a toe popper. I swear that's like a lower leg popper. (laughs) But it it really, um, because all the guys were there, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Marine sailors, soldiers who have stepped on similar devices who, who have lived just because of quick care, tourniquet after out of there surgery. Yeah. So what happens the 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 seconds after this happens? Are you how aware are you of what happened? What's going through your mind? Are you are you you know uh, like fully physically aware of everything that's going on? I am I am fully conscious, okay. and I I remember I I played this over and over again in my head, and now it's not even a bad thing. Like I'm I'm kind of glad that I remember it the way I do, but um, I am fully conscious, but I I was dazed. Okay. And I didn't know exactly what had happened. And I've had concussions before playing football and rugby. And I kind of remember that feeling where I don't even remember what day it is, but I remember trying to figure out what day it is. That's what it was. Like I was just, I, I remember um, my ears were ringing, just a very, very high pitched ringing sounds. Um, but I didn't know why. And I didn't know what had happened. I didn't even know where I was. Wow. Um, but I'm laying on the ground. I feel like I'm underwater. You know, when you, that sensation of, um, I don't know, everything's like in slow motion yep. and you, you can't really hear anything because of that ringing sound. Um, I, I felt wetness on my left leg, which okay. is the opposite leg that was amputated, amputated. Um, no pain. I didn't feel any pain yet. I started to feel warmth, but it didn't hurt yet. Okay. And I could smell chemicals and slowly, I think over like a 10, 10 to 12 seconds is when it finally hit me. It's like, Oh my goodness. I'm, I just stepped on an IED wow. and that's when, um, yeah, I thought, I thought that might be it because I knew I was bleeding because I could feel, feel that wetness. Uh, I knew I stepped on an IED and I hadn't looked yet to see how bad it was, but, um, I thought that was it. Okay. And yeah. And I, I remember the thoughts that went through my head very clearly at first, I thought I was going to go to heaven and it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't even, it wasn't scary. It was like more acceptance. Interesting. Heaven is a cool place. I'm, I'm a Christian. That's a big part of my life. So I was like, okay, I guess this is it. And then I pictured my wife and my daughter's face. And that's when I got scared. And when I pictured their face and I got scared because I wanted to spend the rest of my life with them. Um, that's when I remember, um, that warmth turned into pain and I called out for doc, you know, our, my Corman, yeah. Corman, who's with a Marine unit, we call him doc. And so I called out for doc. And before I can even get it out twice, he was over on me saving my life. So it was almost like that feeling of, um, you hear about people when, uh, like when they freeze to death, that sort of like sense of, um, like acceptance in a way, you know? of um, like where that's the most dangerous place to be. And before your wife and kids came into your brain, you ha- sort of had this, not that you were going to die because the the corpsman was on you, but but that yeah. sort of sense of like, it can slip away that easily just mentally. Yeah. And and it, it was, it, it was this lack of control. Like I was not in, in control at that point. And mm. uh, I think that has always been a big part of my life. <laughs> Being a Marine infantry officer, you know, I, I planned and planned and knew this and I needed this and I wanted this information. And, uh, I, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. And all of a sudden I was not in control. I was yeah. like, oh, okay, I guess so. I accept, uh, I'm accepting this. Wow. 
And then I was fired back into it by the realization that, um, yeah, my wife and my daughter needed me and I needed them. So how, do you know how damaged your leg was? Was amputation a foregone conclusion or was it something that you had to um, wrestle with in, in, in the hospital type of thing? I, I never had to wrestle with it in the hospital. Um, it's, it, the, the blast basically took off my heel and lower part of my, my right leg. Okay. Um, and, uh, when I went into my first surgery, there, there were still toes attached somehow. And when I came out of that first surgery, I was, I was missing my leg halfway of my shit. So I I didn't have to make that decision because there are a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people that do. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt like when you woke up and you looked down and, and, um, and it was gone? (sighs) There were so many emotions. Um, I mean, this whole, the whole thing was a roller coaster. Uh, one very, very strange looking at your, you used to look at your foot, you know, the pre, I was 28 at that time. So 28 previous years of my life, my foot was there, you know, and it's like, wow, that's strange. And it's like, Oh my goodness, I, I can't, I'm, I'm alive. I, this is awesome. I'm alive. And then, um, I was relieved. I was relieved that I was out of Afghanistan because, you know, it was a mission that I wanted and, and something I wanted to do for a long time, but I didn't realize how much weight I was holding like on my shoulders, just the, mm. the burden of, of, you know, leadership responsibility. Uh, and it was just, it was really, I, I guess it was just when I knew I wasn't going to be fighting in Afghanistan anymore, I was like, wow, I'm relieved. Interesting. And because I, because I felt relieved I felt guilty right? because the team, now yep. my team of four guys is down to three and now I feel relieved because I'm not there, but I'm the one that messed up and now they got to be there. And then I was also embarrassed. You know, I was a captain of the United States Marine Corps and I'm the, I'm the guy that stepped on this IED. And so I, there were so many emotions. And so like for five minutes, I'm just like, yes, I get to go home and see my family, you know? And then it's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to walk? I don't understand what the next step is. So it was just a very, very weird um, back and forth experience in my head. Yeah. So speaking of next step, what was the next step then? How long, um, uh, like, are you, uh, I'm assuming you're probably sitting there going like, you know, probably looking at, if you're even thinking about it all, like thinking about years and years of recovery and physical therapy and all of this stuff, right? I mean, it's, um, you, you just lost half your leg. Yes. And it, it, um, honestly, it's just more of a fear of the unknown yeah. that was an artist because uh, I had known I had known guys that had lost a leg or had an amputation. And I just I didn't know what their process was. So okay. I, I had no, I, I had no idea how a prosthetic leg works. I had no idea um, how long it took. I didn't know if it was like, OK, I'll be walking again in a year in five years or I don't know. And then you see like on the Olympics, you see Oscar Pistorius running and like, will that be me? Like, right. I, I don't know. Like, I, I just didn't know. And that's, that's what, that's what was scary. Uh, and plus I was just so uncomfortable at that time yeah. and the different surgeries that it was hard to really focus on uh, much of that besides yeah. like, I need to get out of pain right yeah. now. I need to get out of pain. So your normal, um, rehab and physical therapy is going on. When do you, when does it start to enter your mind? Um, because again, you didn't come from endurance sports. So it's not like you were saying, I can't wait to get back to, 
you know, running marathons or doing triathlons, right? So at what point, like, what was the, what was the catalyst for getting your mind going in the, in the direction of endurance sports? I, I would say the catalyst came from an email I got while I was in the hospital bed, um, two weeks after, after my injury, I'm back in San Diego and I get an email from my boss. <laughs> it, it was uh, major Ike Moore at that time. He, um, he sends me this email. I open it up and it says, Eric, let me know when you're going to run your first marathon. <laughs> and I read that and I'm like, man, what a jerk, right? Yeah. Just, <laughs> it just sort of that sort of morbid sense of humor type of thing. Yeah. yeah. But it, it was exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah. And he knew that. And it's like, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Let's stop worrying about like what it is I'm not going to be able to do. Cause that's going through my head. It's like, okay, I guess I'll never kick a soccer ball with my right left foot again, or I'll never, how am I going to stand up in a shower? Or, you know, you're thinking of things that you're not going to be able to do anymore. Yeah. And that email is basically like, stop, stop, yeah. stop doing that. And let's focus on what you can do. And why don't you set a goal? <laughs> and that's when it's like marathon, I'm going to one up it. And I was like, Iron Man, that's it. Wow. I'm going to, uh, and, and truth is I, I had no idea. Um, I didn't know much about endurance sports at all. But at one point, there was someone at the Naval Academy that was going to go run an Ironman, and someone was kind of explaining it. I'm like, "Oh, that sounds miserable." <laughs> and I was, it was like, it was that the seed was planted, and now I lose my leg. I need something big that's that seems almost impossible, and that's what it was. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into, right. but I knew that it was going to be challenging, and I knew that's what I needed. So it's like, that's it. That's, I'm going to set this goal to run an Ironman. Wow. So correct me if I'm wrong. This The accident happens in December of 2011, right? Correct. Yeah. And then I'm looking I'm looking on your athlete's profile. Then I see in May you do um, the, uh, the, the Bay Bridge run walk in May. So basically five and a half months later-ish. And you yeah. do, was that a 10K? No. Or it's no like a, it wasn't. I don't think it was very far. It might've been four miles. I don't know. I had no idea. Yeah. But, um, that that's what we use. Four miler. <laughs> I, yeah. Four miler. I, I didn't have a run leg yet. Okay. So I kind of hobbled that thing and it was, it was a cool little, cool little thing. But after that we went back and went, went back to the doctor and said, okay, can I get a run leg now? Yeah. I'm going I'm to keep going. At first it was hard to get going. Taking that first step is hard. Right. But then like going through physical therapy, like, I wanted to start agility before they wanted, you know, before I, I should have. And then once I was doing agility, I wanted to start doing some more running before I should have. It was like, um, it, it was hard to be patient yeah, and, and let the process happen, okay. which, which, which I think was a good thing. Yeah. You know, I had people holding me back, but I was just eager to, to keep going forward. So finally I get this run leg and, um, just, we just continue to move forward. <laughs> Yeah. So what, like who was holding your hand, I guess, during this time, because then like, I don't know how the hell you did it, but all of a sudden you end up in super frog, which is then later bought by, um, Ironman in September. So the journey between December to September of the following year, where again, you're not coming from, it's not like you have a big swim background, biking background, run background, all of a sudden, I mean, you're on like a, you're on like a rocket ship basically into your first high, um, half, mar uh, half Ironman. Like how, how are you doing this? Do you, do you, is challenge athletes involved at this point or you, like, how are you doing this? Oh uh, yes, they are. Of course they are. Okay. And and that's the thing. Like I, I like to think of it. Um, my, my endurance sports career is it's a team sport. 
It is like I get to go out and run these races and like it says my name with an individual time, Mm -hmm. but it is an absolute team. Mm-hmm. And very early on, um, the Challenge Athletes Foundation, I was introduced to them through their program. Uh, it's called Operation Rebound. Okay. And uh, um, they just started supporting me. I met the, the program coordinator, Nico Mar- Marcolonga, who um, he's also a Marine, Marine major. Like we clicked really quickly. Uh, he said, hey, Eric, what, what sport do you want to do? I'll help you get into it. I'll empower you because that's the thing. Like, you know, I'm empower you to go do sports, then you go do it. I was like, I, I want to race an Ironman. That's my goal. And he's like, okay, I'm not going to do it with you, but I'll <laughs> help you get to the start line. So, um, wow. they, they bring me on the team and, um, not, you know, they support with, um, if you need equipment, okay. uh, if you need race registration or travel or anything to help you get there, okay. they help with that. Um, but I think the, one of the, one of the, key elements of the challenge athletes foundation is um the the athletes that are, they already helped and are continuing to support are now mentors so now not only am i do i have this goal to race and i have the equipment but i'm watching other people do the sport and it's like okay this is possible and this is what he's doing and this is what he's doing and these guys are coming alongside of me and uh we go to a triathlon camp and it's like wow let's let's go and yeah. i think it was, Michael Johnston, who um, he left below knee amputee, um, Navy veteran, who said, let's get signed up for a race. So it was that August um, 2012. Okay. So it was about eight months after my injury. Yep. When and did my first sprint triathlon. Okay. So that was, was Camp Pendleton? Yes. Yep. Yeah. What, Everything was happening happening faster than I expected it to happen. Way faster. No kidding. I mean, are you um, – like as far as the healing process goes, are do you like is there pain of the injury at this point anymore, or is it just more kind of wear and tear with the um, with the prosthetic and the and the kind of connection points or the um, the socket? Yeah, I would say more wear and tear at, at that point. Still, though, like within that year, uh, the the size of my limb was changing dramatically. So, like every few months, we would have to make a new socket because you, generally, like I was losing mass now okay. that I. Didn't, have that foot. I didn't need that calf. So slowly my limb was shrinking, Got it. um, which was, it was just, it was very challenging to, yeah. to be, be into sports. Like while you're learning how to walk, you're, you're also like learning how to run and yeah. swim and bike all at the same time, which it, it was a lot mentally. Like I thought yeah. it was going to be a lot physically, but it was more of the, the challenge of, um, trying to keep that limb healthy so I can keep at it. Are are there like the, the prosthetic that uses that sort of Oscar Pistorius blade? Um, mm-hmm. Do you have lateral support? Like, could you play basketball with that? Or is there a different style of prosthetic for that? Yeah. I wouldn't want to play basketball in that. It's not, it's, it's more straightforward, Okay, more of an endurance leg. And even like a sprinting leg, you're not, you're not going to be moving back and to the left and to the right and yeah. cutting very well. Uh, so, I mean, there are some regular feet with a heel. When you have a heel, you, that's where you can play basketball Got and do it. some of the other sports a little bit easier. Okay. Um, so there are some feet that, that some feet that are, are really good for those sports, but for running the, the, uh, where Oser flex run, it's a, a curved shaped leg, okay. which is cool. The blade yeah. kids love, kids <laughs> love. Oh man, look at that guy. Yeah. He's crazy. I'm like, you're right. Come check this out. And I love it when, when I'm walking down the street and I can see it. I, and I know it's going to happen. A kid points 
and says, that guy has a robot leg. And the, and usually the mom or dad is like, oh, dude, you don't do that. Don't say that. <laughs> no, story. I'm like, no, no, come check it out. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll show you a trick. I'll take my leg off and give it to him. It's, it's, I kind of love that kind of stuff. Oh, that's hilarious. Nice. What context did you meet Nico under? Was, how was he helping you at the time? Uh, yeah. So, so he runs that program, Operation Rebound. Okay. And uh, they're, they're located in Southern California, the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And that's where my recovery was. It was out of the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. That's where we were living. And um, we were actually doing a surf clinic. So every Thursday, it was part of like uh, recreational therapy. One, okay. getting, I mean, it was, it was probably crazy looking because we'd go out to Del Mar Beach in, um, in San Diego, North, North County. And there would probably be about sometimes 10, sometimes 15, just amputees, sometimes wow. single, double, triple amputees, people in wheelchairs, hanging out at the beach and surfing. And I, you know, the problem, <laughs> one thing it's, it's getting, getting, um, the Marine sailors, soldiers back out into the public. Yeah. Cause at that point, a lot of us, you know, we went straight from Afghanistan or Iraq to the hospital, which is on a Navy base. And that's kind of your life. And you, you, you don't go out to the store. You don't go out to church. You don't go out in, in the public. So that's like, it's kind of a dual thing. You're out in the public and you're engaged in some type of sport. So it was surfing. And that's where I saw Nico because he helped run that program. Got it. Um, along with the hospital. And just uh, okay. it, you, it was a great opportunity to, to meet him and get started with CAF. Did you get any good at surfing? I was horrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask what's harder, the swim, bike, run, or surfing on the, on the yeah. prosthetic? Uh, I would say surfing. But yeah. you know what? I would, my mentality, like, if it was like a, a, if the waves weren't very big one day, I wouldn't even want to waste my time. Mm. It's like, yeah, yeah I want <laughs> I want to go out when there's like double overheaders yeah. and paddle out and I get knocked off my board and I get back on and keep going. And I've like, I didn't grow up swimming, but my time trying to surf, it has actually really been an advantage to me in this open water swimming. Cause mm. I mean, when you get in water, some people kind of freak out in the open water. Yeah. Uh, and if it's an ocean swim, I can kind of read the waves a little bit and, I'm just very comfortable when it comes to open water. Yeah. I might have the ugliest stroke in the world, but I'm comfortable <laughs> doing it. <laughs> so let's talk about, yeah, let's talk about your training and things like that. So you decide to do this, you um, do the the Bay Bridge run, and then you're doing August, you've got Camp Pendleton. Um, how are you training? How did you find it swimming? Is it different swimming? Um you know, you don't kick a ton in triathlon swimming, obviously you're more sort of balancing your hips and things like that in the water. But did you find that as a limitation, uh, on the swim? Yeah. The first time I jumped into a pool, it just felt so weird. Cause although like I, I wasn't a swimmer, I, I couldn't like, um, rip up and down the pool with good strokes. I was at least comfortable in the water to tread water and to go back and forth. And when I got in and that foot wasn't there to kick, yeah. it was like, whoa, <laughs> this is strange. I like couldn't really tread water. Um, when I start swimming, I would go clockwise because only that left foot's kicking. <laughs> oh, interesting. But, um, it, after just a few weeks, it, it was normal. Okay. And once I started, like I started going to a master swim program. And um, once I started figuring out a little bit of technique, it's like, I, I don't even remember what it's like having two legs mm. swimming. Yeah. So it's just... Um, yeah, it kind of is what it is. And it just, you know, yeah. I think that's where having a little bit of a stronger upper, upper body helped me out is I just use a lot of upper body. 
Yeah, it's very different than like Olympic style swimming that you see where you've got this massive kick going in the back. You know, if you've ever, for those listening, if you've only watched triathlon, but you're you're just barely flutter kicking to basically kind of, again, keep the hips balanced. And then you might kick a little bit harder in the last like 100 yards just to get the, some blood into your legs for the for the bike. So I right. wouldn't, I wouldn't assume it'd be a big limitation. So, um, and as, as you start going to the bike, um, same, same prosthetic, are you using the blade on the bike? No. Uh-uh. Okay. So I, I have, once I got into, I would say I, it, as we go further into the story, uh, I ended up getting like a, a, an actual biking leg, but I would bike in just my everyday walking prosthetic at that time. And, um, okay. Yeah. Eventually I, I went to a leg that's, uh, it, I mean, we call it a biking leg, but it kind of looks like a regular prosthetic. It's just some of the angles are set up differently okay. just because you, know, you move differently in it. So it I, a, I get I generate more power with that than I do my walking leg. Okay. But it's about the angles. It's not the material. There's no like spring or bounce or anything to it or, or no, is there? Okay. For the better when it comes to the bike. Okay. And then, so run prosthetic, you're in, you're in the, um, in the blade. I would assume my assumption is that the run is the hardest thing to master and to, to build skill around. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, for me, it was more of, um, the, the swim and the bike was more challenging for me. Okay. The run was just harder on my body. Okay. You know, I can get on the bike and go and there's very little, it's, it's not as rough. So it's, um, uh, I didn't have to worry about getting blisters and, and whatnot. The running, even though like I, I never did endurance sports, you know, as a Marine, we, sure. we ran a lot yeah. and like that we prided ourselves in physical fitness. So I, I kind of had, I guess I had a base, right? Yep. And so when I started running, um, the blade, it actually, the energy you put into it, it returns that energy and it makes the natural running, um, dynamics very similar to if, if you have two normal legs. Okay. Uh, so once you get going and your leg fits and the height is perfect and the angles are perfect, then it, it really feels natural to run. Okay. It's just, it's just it, you, your body, your joints, there's more shock involved, but, um, so, so it's not something that you're necessarily learning how to do it. You just, you put it on. And again, as long as the, the measurements are all correct and the angles are right and the it's dialed yeah. in, it just sort of feels like natural. Yeah, I, I had to really concentrate on um, engaging my glute on that side a little bit more, just so my hips didn't drop. But it's just, you know, I, I noticed it on if you go up or down a hill. When you go up a hill, uh, a lot of times, like your, your calf helps you out, and when you don't have a calf, you mm-hmm. gotta a little bit of extra push from your your glute, and uh, I don't know, using your hamstrings more. Yeah. And then when you down a hill, it has a tendency to like the energy you put into it, it comes back. So you, your leg is starting to go crazy going downhill. But when you're flat, it feels pretty normal. And again, it, it, it gets normal. Okay. It's just, it was just challenging to keep your, your limb, um, while, while you're putting in miles, trying to train day in and day out, it's yeah. challenging to keep, um, blisters away and, and just your skin healthy. Okay. So, and it sounds like, well, I would, I would surmise like it's kind of wreaking havoc on, you know, your other joints, like keeping, like it, it seems like massage and chiropractic would be huge. Um, because again, you're just, you're hitting weird angles that your body has never hit. Is it something you get used to, or is it always a problem? Do you find it different like that? Where, um, again, instead of just sort of this symmetrical, um, uh, 
um, force on your body. Now you have all this asymmetry happening. Happening. Yeah. And so now looking back, I kind of wish I would have known this a couple of years ago, but I'll, I'll watch video of me running on a treadmill. I'll even send it, make sure that my prosthetic practitioner gets an eye on it. And it's like, Hey, what do you think's going on? This is looking pretty good. And he, and he'll even say like, well, you're not driving with your left hip or you're doing this or whatever. So I'm, um, I'm trying to be as cautious as I can. Got it. From the start, I had the, because I did, I did physical therapy for, I was, I had to do it for six months and I just kept on going cause it was really helping. So I had this very strong core. I was flexible, strong legs. So I had, I had that going into like the first two years of it. And then once I considered myself an Ironman triathlete, <laughs> let's, let's keep doing this. Um, I stopped doing like uh... core and stretching and I'm just doing big miles. <laughs> and that's when I ended up with a herniated disc and some bulging discs and that's when things went bad. And it's like, okay, I have, I have to be more cautious about what I'm doing. Like everybody does, but I do have this asymmetry. And if, if I'm not taking care of my body, then uh, it's going to break down. And I, I, I'm asking it to, to do a lot. I need to get back to the stretching and the massage and, and the strength, core strength. Yeah, I think that's the that's a, a story a lot of athletes tell, especially triathletes, is especially with the swim, bike, run, the thing that gets sacrificed. It's not like you're not going to swim or you're right. not going to bike or you're not going to run. And so all of the core and the lifting and the physio stuff ends up being sacrificed when that's the first thing that gets cut off the calendar. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're, um, again, kind of going back to this, like you go Camp Pendleton in August – and yeah. then you're boom, you're in super frog. Like that, that is insane. Yeah. Um, that was, that was Nico's fault. Okay. And that's a quick ass turnaround. So yeah. August to September, you go from a sprint try to a, you know, I mean, again, it's an ocean swim, um, half Ironman. I mean, it's, it's not easy. So what you said it was Nico's fault. <laughs> what happened there? Did he oh, trick well, you? I- I get it now, kind of, <laughs> uh, he, I mean, it's just awesome. And it's what I expect. Like I, 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 I do that first sprint triathlon and then a week or two later I get a call from Nico. And again, you know, with challenge athletes foundation, operation rebound, he calls is like, Hey Eric, do you think you're ready for a half Ironman? <laughs> and I'm like, ah, I don't know. And he says, come on, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And I'm thinking like, in my head, there's there's a lot of bad things that can happen. There's a lot I'm of bad things. <laughs> I don't think I've done any of the distances like in in either sport. I'm yeah. like, ah, you know, I, all right, I'll give it a shot. Sure. <laughs> so, so I go out and give it a shot. And it was Lance Armstrong was coming into town to Coronado to do that race. Yeah. So I was going to go and race against him. So that's cool. not intimidating, right? <laughs> not at all. No. And everybody forgets how great a triathlete he was before he really went headlong into cycling. So yeah, I remember that. I remember that race when he was sort of plotting his comeback into triathlons. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you're at this point, so you've now technically run a half, a half uh, marathon as part of the half Ironman. And then, you know, I mean, why not? Let's just do a marathon the next month. Right. (laughs) Right. So then you do Marine Corps. So that's the thing like that popped up and I'm like, of course, I mean, I, I'm probably never going to get an opportunity to run a marathon within a year of losing my leg again. Right. So yeah. I, I'm going to have to get this thing done now. That kind of has a little bit of a funny story as well. The day before the race, um, a hurricane was coming up the coast 
And I got a call because I, I was I was with um, the Wounded Warrior Battalion. I was still a Marine. Okay. And I was basically, basically on orders to go do this race. And I got a call saying, hey, you're not going to do the marathon because we changed your flight. You have to do the 10K. I think it was the 10K or the okay. 10 mile. Probably a 10K. And uh, I said, you know what? Uh-uh. No, I'm, I'm going to do this race. And uh, now, so when, when's my flight? And they said, you have to finish this bef- within five hours. And okay. you've never mar- marathon before. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's perfect. Because my goal is 4.30. Perfect. <laughs> so I don't see what, how that can go wrong. Yeah, <laughs> everybody knows that whatever you put as your marathon goal, that's pretty much what you're going to run. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I've realized it's usually about an hour off. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly but for your I, first. I now had motivation to run this uh, 430 marathon. Wow. And it worked out, <laughs> surprisingly. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, that's that's what's crazy is, um, I just lost your results page. The, um, you know, again, there are, there are a whole lot of people out there who would um, love to run a sub, you know, a 430 marathon here you are, you're a year in, less than a year in of just running marathons. Forget about the leg completely. You're a <laughs> yeah. year in of being an endurance athlete, of running your first first marathon. You do a sub 430. Um, do you, obviously, the story with every marathon is the wall, right? At 18, 20 miles, do you feel... One, do you hit the wall? Two, if you do hit the wall, do you hit it in a different way than, like, is it centered around your whole body? Is it the leg? Or, like, what do you experience in that first marathon that surprised you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hit a wall. It was a big wall. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it hung me down. Uh, very, very cool, though. I was actually with, uh, I had someone pacing me. His name is Chris Vargas. And he had run plenty of marathons and we start off fast. And he's like, I think we might be going a little fast, but Hey, get it where you can, I guess. Right. And sorry, uh, what was your goal then? What was he pacing you to? What was your goal? So, so my goal was four thirty. Okay. So I guess it wasn't as much a pacer as it was. Uh, I'm going to run with you. Make Got sure it. you don't yep. wearing this thing because I was, I came out of the gate running like, I don't know, low eight minute miles. And okay. it's like, it's like, you're going to set a record. <laughs> <laughs> but feeling pretty good. I, f- I think mile 10, um, I you know about mile eight, like I sit down for the first time. Cause at that point, one issue that, that I have is when, when I sweat my liner, so I, it goes leg, I have a silicon liner on top and then my prosthetic, my, my liner fills up with sweat. So I have to stop, take off the leg, take off the liner, uh, drain that thing try to find something dry enough to like get some of the sweat off, put it back on put the leg back on and go. Now it's a quick process. Back then it was like, uh, this could be like, you know, maybe two or three minutes of me fumbling around with it. Okay. So mile 10, I stop and like mile 15, I do it again. And I'm just, I'm in a little bit of pain, but, and it's mostly with the leg. Everything else is okay. Like I'm, I'm munching on donuts and goose and all kinds of things and, um, drinking enough water. So like physically I was okay. Just the leg was really bothering me. Yeah. A mile 19 ish, 19 in between 19 and 20. Uh, I was in a ton of pain. I was in a ton of pain with my leg and then every part of my body, like my left foot had a blister, my leg hurt. Um, I was starting to feel the, like my hips were hurting. It was just like, Oh, this isn't good. Yeah. And at that point, uh, a Marine that I had served with came running up beside me and he's like, Hey Eric, 
how you doing, man? I'm like, oh, not, not good. Not good. <laughs> no, he's like, oh, you got it. It's like, well, and he said, I, he said, you must have been flying because you were in front of me a good bit. I'm like, yeah, we, we went out a little hot. <laughs> but uh, he said, I'm going to run it in with you. So like the last six miles, now I have two people running with me. Cool. And um, I think I stopped probably every two miles to just fix some things with my, my nub. Yeah. But came limping across that thing. When you cross the finish line, every bit of pain that you're in, stops for yeah. like 30 seconds and it's like yeah hey we did it yeah and then it's like oh man oh this is gonna be a bad week this next week yeah but it was a really cool experience yeah i bet yeah we call that the reignition moment where you're basically <laughs> cursing yourself the last you know in this case six miles or whatever it is of the marathon but there's just something you see that finish line you cross the finish line and first it's you know thank God I'm done. Second is when's my next race. And then sometime later is when the pain sets in. I love it. Yep, yeah, that's so true. Indeed. So, um, and it's important to point out, so you going into super frog, had you run a half marathon yet? No. Huh. Okay. So a month earlier, you had not physically run 13.1 miles. And then you do that in the month, uh, yep, it's pretty much exactly a month between these two races. Do you up your training? Is there anything, or or were you using basically Super Frog as your base? Uh, I I I mean, I was told I had to get like to try to get like an eighteen to twenty miler in. Yeah, and I did try, but I didn't know yeah. the nutrition side of things. Okay, and I I actually I left from my house. Man, I felt great. I ran. I was going to turn around at like nine miles. I turned around at ten, maybe eleven, and I'm starting head, head to head home. Yeah. And then uh, the legs doing fine, but I fizzle, and I end up. I'm sitting on the side of the road. Luckily, I took my phone with me, and I called my wife, and I'm like, "This is where I am. Can you please pick me up? I think I'm. I, I don't think I'm going to make it." <laughs> <laughs> And of course she came and picked me up and I drank like a whole gallon of apple uh, juice. It's amazing how fast that sets in. And and it, it's almost always uh, preceded by, man, I feel good. God, this is, I just feel amazing. And then all of a sudden, and that's what, you know, that's what gets you to run that 10 or 11 mile versus the nine mile to the turnaround. And then it, uh, yeah, the body yeah, right? has an interesting way of tricking you. And, and I, I think like a lot of athletes, um, you know, I, I, I was told that you know, but I had to experience it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's why when I ran the marathon, even like miles three and four and five, uh, I wasn't hungry, but I was taking in nu- nutrition because I didn't want to feel like I did during that training. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of one, once you feel it and you experience it, you learn from it and, yeah. and you think your next long run through a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a learning process. That's for sure. I mean, fitness is only part of the story. Yeah. So jumping forward, you're, I mean, just a few months later, March, you're in California, Ironman. Um, I mean, and then just the list goes on and on. I mean, the number of 70.3s in Ironmans in your times, I mean, you know, you're basically a five and a half hour half, um, you know, you're sub 10 um, uh, uh, iron, well, about 11, 11 hour um, Ironman, uh, Ironman Arizona. So you were in, you were in my backyard several times there when I was living down there. So. That is, that's my favorite Ironman. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm seeing, let's see. So were you in the, yeah. So November, cause that, that race moved. It was, uh, that moved February to November or November to February. I always forget, but, um, the weather was so damned unpredictable. 
Yeah. It's, it was pretty like, no, I think it moved to November. Yeah, it did. Uh, yep. In November, like my, sometimes you got to worry about the wind, but mm-hmm. so I raced it, I think four times and I've had pretty good experiences, um, except for one year there, but cool. I, I love it. Cause, um, it, one, it's a good course, but it's great for spectators as it well. Is. Yeah, my it really family, is. And the, just the support that I get from my wife and, um, you know, I have three kids now. So my oldest daughter, like just seeing them out there on the course and enjoying themselves, like that, that gets you through the next couple of miles, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that was a favorite. And when we were living in San Diego, you know, we can all drive there. Yeah. We don't have to hop on a plane. I don't have to fly with my bike or whatever. So um, I just, I love that Ironman Arizona. I love the area. It is a good race. And it's, it's the, with Tempe town Lake right there, right. It basically on Arizona state's campus, you've got a great course. I've always, I was talking to Ted Kennedy in episode two or three. He was really instrumental in carving out the Ironman Wisconsin course and how it uses like the parking garage and different things. Um, but, but mainly how it runs down frat row on the university of Wisconsin and with Mill Avenue right there, you know, for Ironman Arizona, just the idea, they, they've never been able to figure out how to route the course up Mill Avenue and run right. past all the bars and the screaming people and stuff. But it'd be a phenomenal addition to the race, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would be cool. So I have a question for you because I'm looking at, um, like at Kona 2013, I noticed you raced in the uh, male physically challenged age group. But, um, I mean, you are you're basically racing against, um, able-bodied quote unquote athletes all around the world. Do you, when you're on course, do you consider yourself a physically challenged athlete or with the prosthetic? Do you sort of, do you think that the the differences sort of melt away in your mind? How do you consider yourself on course? Yeah. On course, the the differences, um, fully melt away in my mind. Like, I, I mean, I have my issue, which I have to change legs and transition, but everyone comes to a race with an issue. They may have, you know, injured their back during training or this or that. Everyone has something they're dealing with. Uh, I know the first year that I was racing, which, which led into Kona, I just, I thought I, was, I had to do physically mm. challenge a handler. I just didn't know any different. Yep. And, and then I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to, like, I, I want to, in, in Ironman, there aren't a, a ton of adaptive athletes racing. So okay. for me, it wasn't a race. So I was comparing my times to able-bodied athletes. So I was like, I'm just going to start signing up in my age group. And I started doing that and like never even once looked back. And that's yeah. when I started really getting better and starting to reach my potential when I was actually racing people. So yeah, on course, I'm, I don't know, I've, I'm, I'm age group athlete. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I was just talking to a, a cycling coach that we had on the on the podcast. I think she's actually going to go live after this conversation. But one of the things that I asked her was about goal setting and and if she had seen a correlation in the goals that people set and then their ultimate performance, meaning you know, she was surprised when she started taking on clients, she kind of just assumed everybody would come in with this goal of the Olympics or the, you know, whatever. And, Mm -hmm. but people were setting these really modest goals. And I asked her, like, do you, do you a year out, two years out of coaching that athlete, do you see a difference in where they end up? And she said unequivocally, absolutely. Is once you start putting those, 
limitations on you. And, the, and she said it wasn't in the work that they were doing. You know, everybody was working equally hard, but there was just something in the mindset of, you know, I'm going to shoot for the Olympics and I might end up at the, you know, the national championships, let's say, you know, yeah. so mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to, to look at how you looked at racing and things like that, because, you know, I'm looking across your times and, you know, like Challenge Daytona, which you most recently did, one, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that course, uh, because it is an enclosed uh, triathlon course, which is something they've been talking about in that industry forever about trying to do. So we'll get to that in just a second. But I mean, you're, you know, you're a hell of an athlete. So this isn't really a story about a, a challenged athlete or a or an amputation. The amputation got you into endurance sport, but you're a hell of an athlete and pushed some great times. So oh, yeah, so sorry, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the um, so let's talk about Challenge Daytona real quick because I'm really curious to see your opinion of racing on an enclosed course. So maybe describe what Challenge looked like for those of the people who didn't get a chance to catch that, and then just yeah. how you felt about it. it. It was cool. So I did the the sprint triathlon, and uh, it was it was really neat because everything was enclosed really i mean you're doing a race and you're not like saying bye to all the spectators leaving and coming back at some point yeah the bike and then the run it's just um the 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 swim was on the infield of the the, the race course and you know they do the daytona 500 which it is a, a massive race course but but still everything's inside you swim in the middle then you ride around the track we rode around the track three and a half times and you go out a little bit and you come back in and then you run around the track once and that's your 5k. And, uh, honestly, I loved, I loved, uh, the aspect of it all being right there in clothes. And, uh, and when, when it's like that, it's extremely, extremely spectator friendly Yeah, uh, because it was uh, COVID-19 because of the pandemic, it wasn't spectator friendly, but it right. has potential of being extremely spectator friendly. So as I'm biking by the stands, I'm just picturing a bunch of people cheering my name as yeah. I'm mashing, mashing the, the pedals. But um, that's cool because that's that's important to me because I, I have three kids and a wife who they love to be part of it. So when they can be part of a race like that, that I don't know, that brings confidence to me. Yeah, um, I really liked the race aspect of it. The, I think the only drawback and it's something I feel like they can figure it out with more waves. Maybe um, it just it got real congested cycling on, yeah. on the bike. course. It got pretty congested and there was a lot of um, uh, having to go in and out and around and. Um, so, I mean, that was tough, but I, I feel like, um, I feel like there's definite, definite potential yeah. to continue to, to e examine that and to, uh, do these races. It was fun. It was, it was a, a ton of fun. Yeah. Being a, a challenge, um, which has nothing to do with challenge athletes foundation challenges, the name of the company that put on the race, but the, um, being that they're international and I know they have some connections to the ITU, I assumed that it was going to be an ITU style meaning draft legal, which then leads to these great run sprint finishes, you know, where people are literally uh, duking it out on the last, you know, 200 meters. So have you ever done an ITU race? And and would you have done that had the Daytona been an ITU style? I definitely would have done it if it was ITU style. I have not done an ITU where the bike is draft legal. Like yeah. that, I mean, it would be new to me. Uh, I would love it. Yeah. But uh, with... With the um, in paratriathlon, we it is not draft legal, so okay. you do get guys on on the course, and so that's kind of what I've been 
um, gearing up for and practicing. So I, you know, I, I, I think it would be pretty neat though, because yeah. everyone's going to do the work on the bike, then get off the bike and it, the, the race really starts at, at the run. You know, everyone yeah. Everyone who dropped either they catch up or not, but you have this big group that would come off the bike together. Yeah. And I think it would be a ton of fun to watch that to be a part of it. Yeah, just it so drastically changes your race tactics about how hard you have to put into the swim to get out with the lead group and then how hard, you know, you have to put on the bike versus just saying I'm kind of in a sprint try is is interesting because you're basically pedal to the metal for, you know, an hour or, you know, hour and 10, hour 15 depending on your skill level. So it's it's there's not that there's no tactics, but you're basically just saying like catch me if you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're going um, when with the Olympic schedule now, one, I know that you're going for the Paralympic team, the U.S. triathlon Paralympic team. Um, so one, is that a foregone conclusion that the Olympics will happen? Are they still trying to decide if they're going to happen? And then how are you approaching your training and, and approach to that sort of being in a potential state of limbo this year? Yeah. Hey, great question. Uh, I think, I mean, right now the, the Olympics and Paralympics are on and okay. that's, just, that's all I need to hear. <laughs> I, I'm not going to continue to second guess it and look at the news. I'm just going to wait until I'm going to push hard until someone says, all right, stop pushing hard. Let's focus on maybe 2024 and in, in France. <laughs> but right now I'm, I'm going to train and work as if, you know, we'll be competing, um, early, late August, early September in Tokyo. Okay. And is it Olympic distance uh, or sprint? Sprint distance for okay. paratriathlon. Para is that, yeah. a, is that, uh, is there an Olympic and a sprint or is it only sprint? Uh, it's only sprint. Only sprint. And is that specific to Paralympics versus Olympic? I mean, there's a reason why it's called yes. Olympic. Yes. Yeah, so in the Olympics, uh, it is an Olympic triathlon. Oh. And in the Paralympics, it's a sprint triathlon. Oh. And we're broken down into different categories. So okay. I raised I'm the PTS four, which I race guys with a, a below knee injury or amputation or above elbow. Okay. So like we're, we're classified together and that's who that's like our age group. That's who we're racing against. Uh, so there are a handful of different categories that'll be racing in the Paralympics and it'll be a busy spring trying, trying to get into races, travel around and qualify for them. Well, that's interesting. Is there, I'm thinking about the swim for, um, a below, you said below elbow or above elbow? Yeah, uh, above elbow is in my group. Below okay. elbow is the next group. So PTS. above elbow, so you have your prosthetic t so that you can run and you can ride. Is there any kind of prosthetic for the swim for an above elbow amputee? No. Okay, no, so that's... Bikes are, are used in the swim. Okay. So it, it is absolutely amazing watching someone swim with one arm right. faster than me. <laughs> wow. It's like just the way they kick and use their legs, and you'll see some like butterfly type strokes with just one arm. Yeah, I, mean, I just it, it blows my mind. But um, yeah, it's right now it seems fair enough. Like in the the I'd say the top ten, top twenty, um, there are a handful of below let, below knee amputees and above elbows that racing each other and pretty competitive. Okay, that is awesome. Wow. Okay, yeah. I hadn't known that. That's that's interesting. Wow. Okay. So how do you, um, I'm just curious again, because like looking at your times, I'm always curious to see how people, especially in triathlon, um, because of something has always got to give in training, unless you're, you know, a pro thinking about this 24 seven. 
So you have the swim, you have the bike, you have the run, you have core, you have lifting, you have rest, you have all of these different aspects of training. Um, Give us some insight into, I guess, how your training has changed over the years of, you know, like just learning how to swim and bike and run in the very beginning. And then Mm -hmm. what does your training look like these days as you start to prepare for the Paralympics? Yeah, it's so honestly, like right now, um, I've been, I've been coached for three different times and I've just been around triathlon for, I don't know, seven, eight years almost. So I've like, I have this experience, even, even though sometimes I consider, I consider myself a rookie, like I have this experience and I know what works for me. And I've, I've found that, um, one, I just, I like to keep my training simple. Like I don't. I don't, I guess I'm a little bit of a bigger volume kind of guy. And I, and I think that's from some earlier coaching. Um, but simple, like repetitive each week, I'm doing very similar workouts. So, you know, if I'm hitting a big block, um, you know, maybe two months prior to an Ironman, I can look back at week one and say, okay, this workout, I am progressing. Like that's confidence for me, but I like, I like repetitive. I like the routine and, um, I like easy to memorize workouts. <laughs> I don't okay. I don't have much finesse where sometimes someone will throw a workout at me and I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I got to do what for 30 seconds and then yeah. build up this. I just like very simple. Why, you know, one anaerobic day for each discipline, one long, slow aerobic day, and then one like tempo or hill type workout. Okay. And I can fit some other things in there throughout the week. Okay. Um, consistency is the absolute, the biggest thing. You know, people come to me and they're like, what do you think about this training plan? And then it's like, it might not be great, but I'm like, if you do this training plan consistently, it's better than doing the absolute perfect training plan, Got not it. consistently. Got it. So I just like to, to do the work, to do the work, to um, timing, like you brought it up and, you know, I don't, unfortunately I'm not at the pro level. You know, I, I have to do some other stuff to pay bills yeah. and um, I have to do it early. So I wake up and get my workout in maybe two workouts before my family's awake and before my day starts um, and maybe something else later. But my key workout is generally that first thing I do in the morning, because if I don't, then something always comes up. Mm. And and I think the last one that I I struggled with early, but I'm a lot better with now is just flexibility in my schedule. Okay. Yeah, I used to beat myself up when I would miss workouts yeah. or something came up. Um, and then now I realize um, you can't do that. You just got to move on to the next workout or yeah. I'll have a two week plan always, but I'm always, I'm, I'm adjusting. If something, if I'm, if I'm going to go watch my daughter play softball and I have to move my Saturday workout, like watching my daughter play softball is more important right. than a flower bike ride. And, yeah. and you know, so um, just having that flexibility and not beat myself up over it yeah. um, is helpful. And I, I think we all struggle with that a little bit. Yeah, it's tough. I, I remember you, when I first started getting into triathlons, you know, a long time ago, I remember, I think it was Barb Lindquist. There was like a documentary or some sort of sports profile on her. And you mentioned softball. She was like in the outfield on the, just outside the fence on a bike trainer watching her kid play baseball. And, you know, and it was like, and she kind of was like, oh, I know it's ridiculous, but my kids kind of get a kick out of it. And I'm thinking to myself, 
your kids do not get a like your kids are embarrassed of their mom out there on the bike, but whatever. We'll <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. Just knowing how my kids would be about that is like, oh my God, Dad, what are you doing? Um <laughs> Yeah, but we've all heard the stories of, you know, like you're, you missed your run and then you've got a, you know, like a picnic to go to. So then the person is like running to the picnic and then, you know, like the family's driving and it just becomes this thing and uh, um, can be very disruptive to a family, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a time and a place. Sure. It's like I, I, I will take my running, if my daughter has a softball tournament, I'll take my running leg with me. Okay. And then if, if I catch like a, you know, a break in between games, I'll go out and, sure. and leave the park and run. But yeah. um, I just I just know at the end of the day, like I do have priorities in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, my faith, my family, um, some other things, and then, then triathlon comes yeah. in. And there are times that triathlon comes up to the top and my wife kind of has to nudge me like, hey, it's getting a little bit too important to you right now. Like mm-hmm. we're here. Mm-hmm. You're right. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, that's good. Um, so going back a little bit. So you mentioned um, an anaerobic day. So things like intervals and things like that. Um, you have a long, slow day and then you have the kind of tempo day. So I, I got a coach for a very brief time. He gave me really good. He was a run coach, gave me those three basics, right? I think that's pretty standard is, and then I sort of adapted that into a swim workout and then into a, a biking workout, but give me, so like, give me an example of the three sports on your anaerobic day. So, um, anaerobic day running, is at the track and it depends on where i am like right now i'm building for the sprint triathlon so i don't i don't have to be running um huge miles huge miles i i try to run about three miles and if that's um like earlier on 200s or 400s and that's what it is i'm building up to eight 800s or uh maybe 2ks would be like pretty high up there you know that's that's, um, I don't know, that's kind of a, a big interval, but fast, a little, you know, race pace and a little bit faster on my intervals okay. and, you know, easy warm up and an easy cool down. And, you know, you end up logging, I think yesterday I, I might've, or two days ago, I ran logged about seven miles and three of it was hard. Three okay. of it was a little bit faster than race pace and there, and it was four hundreds. So that was a good day, good workout. I felt great. Okay. Um, enough rest to then the next day I felt fine. Okay. And then, so, so how do you adapt that into the pool? What would a similar workout for a, like an anaerobic pool workout? Anaerobic would be, um, like 25s and fifties okay. with, um, not a ton of rest, like maybe 15 seconds. And that's I like, I, I like the pool because I don't have that swimming background. So I've, you know, I've, I've, I've taken a lot of stuff that I learned swimming at master's course and uh, take that and then I'll, I'll go online and find things. But um, usually like those 25s and 50s are going to be a little bit faster than what I would, I would race at. And uh, my heart rate will be up. And before it comes fully down, like I'm, I'm going again. Got it. Okay. And that's the swim. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I love, I love the swim. Cause I'm usually still like looking down, seeing better times than I yeah. did a year prior and yeah. better times than I did a year prior to that. Have you ever done the drill where you, um, you band your legs together? You basically just do a, like an exercise band and you tie your legs together. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. That one. That is, that's great. That's great for working on your turnover and really just engaging your core to try to keep your, your legs up. 
Yep. And I didn't think it was going to affect me because I only really have that one leg to kick. Yep. So I tie my legs together at the knees and it's, it really, really affects you. Yeah. We had um, a gal, uh, Courtney Hayes, who used to swim for Michigan State. She worked for us in support for years and she gave me that workout. And that one, um, I saw the types of gains that I saw in like those first month or two of swimming where you go from, you know, like a, a 230 hundred down and then, yeah. you know, you sort of plateau it. I don't remember what it was like 145. And then, uh, I did those drills for a few weeks and, and it shaved like 10 seconds off my pace. It was unbelievable wow. how effective that, that drill was. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's great. Okay. And then, so on the bike, do you, do you take a similar approach like where you're on a trainer for your anaerobic days or do you like to be out on the road? Anaerobic days, I, li I like to do it on the trainer. Okay. When I was living in San Diego, I did almost everything out on the road. Okay. And there were some flat areas that I would go on on interval day, but now I live in Pittsburgh. And that first winter that I was in Pittsburgh, that's when I realized it's too cold to be outside and it's too hilly. I can't find anywhere flat. So I, I started doing trainer stuff and I realized how efficient I can be. So basically, like, I'm going to do 30 minutes worth of hard work okay. and it might be, um, three minutes at a time with three minutes kind of rest, easy, easy spinning okay. or, um, up, really up to eight minutes. Okay. But like that five minute one, that's kind of where I am right now. Five yeah. minutes hard, five minutes easy. So I get to 30 minutes hard. And in any of these, do you go by heart rate? Do you go by RPE rate of perceived exertion or how do you sort of judge what pace or wattage or, uh, yeah, pace, you're going to go at? Yeah, I, I, I go at power. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I love, I love the data. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Okay. Um, but I like it more so after I like looking at it after, you know, while, while I'm riding, I'll be on Zift. So the power staring at me so I can kind of keep it like right where I need to. But, but I want that, um, I want to feel like I'm working hard. Okay. Uh, so I won't really, really study that, like what happened until maybe right after, or maybe later that day. And then I can compare like where my heart rate was to the week prior or two weeks prior. But, um, I, I go off of power on the bike and, um, I'm okay with going a little bit less or even yeah. if I'm feeling good, going a little bit more until like, okay, I think I have a little bit more in me. So I guess it's perceived effort more so. Okay. Do you, um, do you use any tools for that? Do you use like a training peaks or something to go back in and analyze or do you just kind of look? I, I've used a couple different ones kind of depending on like what the coaches that I use. I've, I've used training peaks before right now. I just use Garmin connect, okay. use Garmin connect. It's, I enjoy, um, that's connected to my Strava. <laughs> so I kind of like, like looking at Strava cause it's like, Oh wow, this I'm, I'm at 120 miles this week. That's cool. It's yeah. fun to see that, but, uh, really look at things. I, I kind of use Garmin connect and there's, you, I mean, it does, it breaks it down really well uh, with everything that, that I feel like I need. Got it. And as far as working on your deficiencies and things like that. So I notice, um, I'm a very similar, um, racer to you, it looks like I'm always kind of in the top 15, 20 percentile and swim and run. And then my bike falls off a little bit. So you're at like, it looks like about 30, you know, um, your, your bike lags a little bit behind the swim and run. Is that pretty typical of you in a, in a race? Do you tend to lose ground on the bike and then gain it back on the run a little bit? No, actually, generally, um, I, uh, so, so I'm, it, it is what it is. 
biking, like I am just not able to push as much power with that right leg. So usually I fought, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm usually pretty strong on the bike actually. Okay. And then, then the, it depends on the distance of the race. So I, I consider myself a strong biker. Um, because I, I, I know, I know that in my, in my mind, uh, I I'll push what I was doing was 60% left leg, 40% right leg. Okay. And lately in the past few years, when I started really looking at data, I've, I've gotten that to like more of, um, 53% left leg, 47% right leg, okay. which has really helped me out. And I, so I feel like biking right now, I'm doing a pretty good job. And then running, uh, it's just when I'm biking strong and my training is pretty good, I run off the bike a little bit better. So okay. actually in day one, I had, a, I had a good run. So yeah. I was really confident and happy about that, better than I did last season. So um, I, you know, it's hard to say what translates to that. Like I felt, I felt great on the bike. And then my run was even better than expected. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like in some races, I'm looking at your um, 2019 Ironman Oceanside um, and you did, you know, you were um, in your division uh, fifth out of 275 on the swim and then you dropped down a little bit 45 on the bike and then jumped back up to 34th fastest run um, in your age group. So um, are you able to pull through with your, um, is it your left leg? My right leg. Your right leg. Are you able to pull through the pedal stroke um, with the like? Is there something that attaches? You know what I mean. Like, how? Do, what are your mechanics like on that right side with the prosthetic? How secure is it to your leg? Yeah, it's 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 pretty secure. And I've gone to a couple of different systems, but so prosthetically, my limb fits into a socket, and then uh, there's a little bit of a vacuum, or I don't have a vacuum, but there's suction that kind of keeps it in there. Uh, and then a sleeve that goes from my prosthetic up to up over my thigh. And, um, the pull when I, when I really try to pull through, that's when, um, I get a little bit too move, too much movement mm. with my leg and my prosthetic. So really I'm, I'm more of trying to engage my glute to like push down with that right leg. Okay. And I do, I do have some break. I, I try to do some single leg cycling very easily just to try to manage that and try to get a full stroke in. But I know that when I'm racing, I'm more pushing down with that prosthetic than I am pulling through. And yeah, and, that, and, that, yeah, it feels like you would, I'm, I'm shocked that you're able to get to, to that level of symmetry, like a 53, 47 kind of thing because of that. Like, do you, do you, do you notice that the, um, the adaptation on the right side affects your left side? Like, do you not pull through on your left side because of it? Um, possibly. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I wish I would, I, I knew exactly what was going on. Down <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, it's when I unclip with my prosthetic side, like I, my hips are just super stable and I'm, I'm very strong, a really good, um, pedal stroke on my left side. And then when I just keep that one clipped in and I, I clip on with my right, that's when my, my hips move a little bit. Cause there is, there is some asymmetry. Um, and, and it's tough. So I, I'm sure that maybe my, my left leg isn't as efficient as it possibly could be because of the, the right leg. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'm, we're figuring out myself and my process yeah. practitioner, like, like we're, we're kind of, we're on top of it and we're, 
were I, I'm not falling too far back in the bike. No, it not be, at all. Yeah, I mean you're. I mean this is literally like I'm. I'm splitting hairs here. You're moving back like two percent in the field, basically, like nine spots in this particular race. So it's. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to give the impression that all of a sudden you're in the back of the pack and then you have to fight your way back up. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like a great bike for me would be like an average bike for one of the top guys. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I know that right now and yeah. I continue to work on it. Well, triathlon's weird in that way because you do have these people with deep swim backgrounds or deep bike backgrounds where they're just, you know, I've been in the water with people where you're watching them swim and you're like, I don't know what you're doing, but it's not what I'm doing. It's just a <laughs> different it just looks different. And the same on the bike where you're just like, there's no way there's not a motor in that thing. Like you, you're on an e-bike. What the hell are you doing? Where, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. The difference in run never seems to be as stark, but the, so, sometimes on the bike in the swim, it just seems like there's some people who just have it. And, um, I, I, I do not. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a, another thing that I've done lately. I'd say in the past two years is really, um, focus on technique. So I used to be more of a volume guy and I think technique comes from volume a little bit. It's like, okay, I've been doing this for a while. Like, uh, I don't know. It's just, you get comfortable like feeling the water or mm. feeling pedals or whatever, but, um, really breaking it down and have someone analyze my run and tell me, Hey, your, your hips dropping, or you need to, you know, um, where your foot strike is hitting center of gravity, like all kind of stuff where it's like, yeah. Oh wow. And I've been making adjustments. I didn't, I didn't realize that there was, technique in in running Got it. and i just i was get out there and go but there really is and then swimming it's a that's a no-brainer yeah. um the best thing that i've i've done swimming was i bought a gopro and i filmed myself underwater and okay. i watched it and i said oh my goodness that's what i look like i thought i looked like michael phelps but i, I <laughs> and then i could make i made small changes based yeah. on that and then I sent that to people and they're like, oh, try this, try this. And that was the most gains that, that I've ever seen is wow. when I just these small tweaks and it doesn't happen in the next swim. Yep. You try to make that small tweak through a drill for like a month and then it starts to like, like your catch gets a little bit better and that might be three or four seconds in, in a 100 or something and then try the kick and it's just small adjustments. Yeah. That GoPro and just seeing myself I've, I've done it with the swim and the run watching myself is like, Oh, that's what I look mm. like. <laughs> so can you, can you think back of like a specific thing that you were looking for on the swim or that somebody spotted on the swim that made a pretty big difference? Yeah. Big thing is, um, my arm was just too straight in the pool. I would get out there and my, my hand would be really far down the bot towards the bottom of the pool. Mm. And I was, I was told to try to like, um, get that, and another one is I was trying to pull like from here instead of like getting it set up. And then that's the mm. strong spot where the, you know, when, when your hand is more even with your shoulder and then you yeah. push, but, um, instead of having my arm straight and really far down in the water, it, it came up, uh, significantly, which was so much easier to Got do. It. And, um, I, I don't know that, that yeah. really helped and you, that you take that times two cause you've got two arms right. and swimming became, fun again yeah so for those of you who couldn't see on the video but it was basically the difference between having a straight arm all the way out in front of you in the water and versus bringing it back sort of at a at where your arm is kind of preloaded in the bent phase and 
maybe down 45 degrees or closer to your sh uh, parallel to your shoulder before you start the pull. Yeah. 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 I guess the big thing is my arm was more, uh, it was closer to like maybe 160 degrees bend. Okay. And then when we changed it, it went down to like 115 to 120. Got it. That, that made a, a significant difference in, in my pull, which is such a big part of the stroke. Yeah. If you had, if you had to, uh, um, like, let's say, you, you know, you can afford a coach for one thing, where would you get, where would you put that swim, bike or run? Everyone's different for me. Um, I, I would do the swim. Swim, yeah. And it's and I I know right now some of the top guys in, in paratriathlon um, are getting out of the water almost a minute prior to me. They have swim backgrounds, yeah. so if I can close that gap, then I yeah. then I don't know that, that would help me out. Yeah, the old adage is you can't you can't win in the water, but you can certainly lose in the water. So yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Yeah. So you mentioned before, like the athletes and mentoring. So a lot of the challenged athletes go back um, um, and and help other other athletes in the Operation Rebound program or otherwise. Have you had an opportunity to go back and do that and, and help other uh, military or otherwise athletes kind of join the program and get their endurance careers going? Yeah, yeah, that, and that that's kind of the coolest part. There's they just there's just always that opportunity. Sometimes. I get reached out to and like, Hey, you know, someone's kind of fresh to an amputation or, or an injury and, um, a phone, can you just do a phone call? It's like, yeah, of course. Or, um, I, I've had the privilege of there, there's these, uh, run clinics that the challenge athletes foundation and OSER the prosthetics company prosthetics and orthotics that they run in different cities. And I get to go and, and help out as a coach at those amputee run clinics. And I, and I'll tell you what, like you, sometimes you get, um, 40, 50 amputees out there from five years old up to 70 years old and two hours of showing someone else how to run and just watching the smile on their face is more rewarding than crossing the Ironman world championship finish line. Oh, I bet. <laughs> it, it is. It's nuts. But, um, I, I love those opportunities because I just, when I think back to my early days, and that I would just, I would look at these other people and these other athletes and it's like, wow, I can't believe that person can run that fast on that. And oh my goodness, he talked to me. <laughs> I should get his autograph. <laughs> I forget those days. And it's yeah. like, I can, I can always be that person. Now, I want to be used like that. I want someone to say, Hey, come talk to him or him or show him or give him a leg. I don't know. That's awesome. And cool. so uh, I assume then challenged athlete kind of um, does all the organization around this and puts the people together and arranges things, as you said, kind of from travel, if you need it, equipment, if you need it, all of those types of things. So a very worthy cause for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So you just mentioned early days. So I want to take you back um, to five minutes or five seconds before you step on that IED and then you project forward you know, the Ironmans, the marathons, the triathlons and everything else that you've done. Um, a couple of questions, like if somebody had sort of like shown you this picture at that moment, would you, would any part of you believe what you've been able to accomplish, um, post accident? Like, does it just seem surreal to you or does it just sort of seem like a natural, like, you know, like, uh, this thing knocked me to the right and I just ran with it as hard as I could. Yeah. It, I feel like there's a couple answers. 
I, you know, it, it feels n- natural that um, I went after something big um, and got into it. But if you, if you would have told me that, you know, before going on patrol that day, uh, I would have looked at it and I would have been excited. You know, <laughs> I would have been like, wow, that that world like I didn't I had I just didn't know that world really existed. And there's there's times now like I have to pinch myself because I, I love it. I like I get the, the privilege and opportunity to um go around the country around the world and race and uh, train and uh, just meet people from all over the place. And I'm just honestly like, I'm great. I'm so grateful for for the life that I have right now. Um, I have, I have this absolute passion for, for racing, for towing that line, for building to it. And it's something that I love to do. And I, I don't know if I would have done it if I wouldn't have been injured. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what my next step was going to be. So, you know, part of me is is um, a big part of me is I'm just I'm grateful that I've I've had this this opportunity. That's it. That was going to be my next question. Was it? And um, I've had this conversation with a few different guests for different reasons. And and it's a it's an oddly um, I don't know that it's a morbid question by any stretch. But is there? My question was going to be which you answered, which is is there some sort of you know, is there some part of you that is in some odd way grateful that this that this happened to you? Not that, that you would have chosen it per se, but it does, one, give you perspective. Two, it seems to have allowed you to experience the sport in ways that a lot of people won't, right? I mean, whether they're taking it for granted or you just offered access and entree into some different um, situations that the rest of us aren't. So it sounds like there the answer to the question is yes, that there is a there's a portion that you're grateful for, maybe not happy that it happened, but grateful for, or you put it in your own words. Yeah, no, I, I think you kind of nailed it. It's like, I, I wouldn't want to go through that pain again. I mean, it was, it was hard. It was hard on me. It was hard on my family, but um, I'll tell you, like we, we all, like we all grew through that. Like we grew tremendously and I recognized what was important in my life and what my priorities are. And, um, I recognize that sometimes like, I mean, you already said (laughs) the whole morbid thing. Like sometimes I think of it like it was a winning lottery ticket. (laughs) You know, how can I think of it like that? It was just, there was an opportunity that present through, through me losing my leg, stepping in an IED and losing my leg. uh, I've had this opportunity to race uh, on the biggest stage of endurance sports in in Kona. And uh, I, I, I don't know. And, and plus, like, I, not only do I get to race, but uh, I get the opportunity to travel around and get on stage and, you know, speak as an inspirational speaker, um, go to schools and, and, you know, share that message of inspiration because, uh, you know, every everybody faces challenges and runs into challenge. It's yeah. a very versatile topic. So uh, it's just, you know, I look at it like, man, I can't believe I'm living this life. This, yeah. is, this is awesome. Where someone... I, I guess I forget when someone looks at me, they might, they might feel sorry for me or like, Oh, I'm sorry that happened. It's like, Oh, that's okay. Like, I'm not sorry it happened. You know, and then, you know, a lot of really good has come from it. I don't know where I read it. I need to find this out because I've brought this up a few times, but I, I remember reading something to the effect that, um, kind of as a maximum, um, we only get up to like three times in life to sort of prove who we are. 
<laughs> you know, that it just isn't, you know, for most of us now, I'm sure, you know, uh, people in different occupations, you know, soldier, policeman, those types of things, maybe you get a few more of those opportunities. But the reality is, is the most of us get somewhere between zero and three opportunities to really prove who you are, you know, to sort of, you know, find out who you are kind of when, when it's darkest and maybe when nobody's looking. Um, are you, is an odd question too, but like, are you proud of how you've handled everything? And, and, uh, not to be self-congratulatory, but do you, like going back from when you're laying on your back, how you handled those things, you, you talked a little bit about the emotion in the beginning, the guilt that set in, how you've handled things since. Um, any regrets, anything where you sort of look back at that moment you had to prove to yourself something that you failed yourself in and then redeemed yourself later? I think overall, big picture, I would say that that, I, that I'm I'm proud, um, and and I just I really look at my uh, situation as you know I was also like kind of kind of lucky that I had the people around me that I had around me, yeah. and um, so my daughter, my oldest daughter, her name is Lupe. She was five years old when I was injured and I, I could have, I could have easily went a different route, but the way that she treated me and looked at me when I got back to San Diego, like I was, I was in my head, I was a different person. I, I was, I looked different. I'm missing a leg. I'm in a hospital bed. I look like crap. I'm I already lost weight in just the week that whatever. And, uh, she, when she saw me, her eyes lit up. She comes, she jumps out of my bed. She like, kind of like tries to look underneath some of the bandages. And she looks at me and she's like, she looks at me and says, daddy, the way that she always used to. I'm like, right. wow, see something in me that I don't even see in me. Wow. And then Bonnie, she's like, daddy, you have a TV in your room. Can we set up the Wii? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I didn't know before I left for deployment, we didn't have a Wii. Of course we can. But, but, Perspective. but throughout those days, she had this expectation of me that I didn't have. She expected me to play, play tag with her. In fact, it was more fun because now I was a little bit slower and, and nice. she expected me to, to volunteer in her school because the other parents did. She expected me to, I, I ended up coaching her soccer team. I never played soccer in my life, but a guy without his kicking foot is now right. coaching little girl soccer team. Like it, I just, I just kept saying yes. Cause she had these expectations of me. And soon enough, like I had these expectations of me and it's like, I, I expect to be able to finish an Ironman. I don't, yeah. I don't know how it's going to happen, but, um, so I, I guess to answer your question, like, um, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm proud of how we handled it. There you I'm, go. I'm yeah. so glad and grateful that, uh, my family was there and the people, this athletes foundation, people came into my life when I needed them and we tackled this thing together and, and I look back and, and I think that we succeeded yeah. <laughs> and I'm just proud of it. No, oh, that's awesome. I was talking to Fitz Kohler who um, she's the race director for Los Angeles marathon and, and some other marathons around the country. And she just survived cancer. And one of the things that really stood out to her was um, less about her journey, but the people who were experiencing chemotherapy who were being dropped off and picked up by the, um, you know, like the 
um, the local, like the van driver service, you know, like mm-hmm. at the, at the home that they were living in or whatever it was, and just the loneliness and things like that, the, the lack of the family support that she had. And that was what really got her through and really stood out to her was, was not how she handled it, but she gave a very similar answer to you. It was just how, how her, her group handled it together and got her through it. So I think again, pointing back to challenged athletes foundation and, you know, if you're looking for a good cause to support, and this is in no way sponsored by challenged athletes foundation. Uh, they're not paying us to do this or save this or anything. So I just wanted to, to, to give that disclaimer that this is all from the heart. Like this, it's a great organization to support and uh, put your charity dollars toward. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at a finish line right now over the horizon. We normally do a little 10 question dash. You want to answer some questions and, uh, have a little fun. Oh yeah. All right, very good. Okay, good. cool. All righty. So, uh, questions are easy, uh, but only honest answers apply here. So, uh, first question, what, uh, what's your gear looking like? What kind of bike shoes, all that good stuff Who are your favorite brands out there? I write, I write a track speed concept. That's okay. my bike. Likewise. I just sold mine a couple of years ago. It hurt like hell, but I had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm between Nikes and Newtons running. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Nike guy too. All right, we'll give you one of those. Uh, next race, uh, swim, bike, run, OCR, tri, marathon. What you got? I got a triathlon. Triathlon. I got a big, big spring, spring coming up, a sprint triathlon to try to qualify for the Paralympics. Oh, that's right. We didn't even get into your, your Paralympic uh, journey here. So um, sorry about that. Well, we'll, we'll have you on when we get closer to that. I'd love to talk to you about that one. Um, do you have a favorite sports book or movie documentary, anything? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess what <laughs> popped in my head, since I have to be honest, what popped into my head immediately was Rudy. I was going to say Rudy. I knew you were going to go to Rudy. You <laughs> came out about the time you would have been playing football. So of course it's going to be Rudy. Uh, what's your bucket list race? What's there, I mean, you've done so many great races. Is there a race out there you haven't done yet that you'd love to do? Yeah, I would love to. Um, well, I mean, I'd love to do like more Ironmans, but uh, I'm, I'm interested in an ultra marathon running because okay. I, I, I don't know how I would do it because even 26.2 miles is hard on the leg. So yep. I would love to I would love to eventually run a hundred mile. Yeah, I was going to say, you and me both on the 26 miles is hard on the leg, but <laughs> it's hard on my whole body. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of of the same. Uh, Badwater's my bucket list race, and I would love to love to do that one someday. Uh, home stretch song or band on your playlist? Do you listen to music when you're training? I, I actually, not a lot. I do more like podcasts, okay. um, listen to books, but a, a good one, and this is funny. But um, Queen, We Are the Champions. Okay. Actually, even though you think of it as a slow song, it has a 180 beat per minute. Um, okay. Uh, so it goes right with your your step rate. And as you're running it, if, you ever, if you're driving down the road and you see some dude on a prosthetic leg with his arms in the air, <laughs> he's running by 180 steps per minute. That's, that's me. That's you. <laughs> Perfect. Love it. That's awesome. Uh, it, this might be the same answer. What's your most embarrassing song on that playlist? <laughs> uh, that might be the same. I think yeah. it's the same one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have any pre-race rituals or superstitions? 
Um, nah, nah, I'm not too strange with it. I hear you. Living or dead, who would you most like to share a long run, ride, not a swim because you couldn't talk, but uh, who would you most like to spend a long day with? Uh, I would like to spend, you know, I kind of want to spend some time with my grandpa. I, I knew you were going to say that. I yeah. had it in my head. I knew you were going to say that. Good answer. All right, Eric, last question. What is the secret? I think that the secret is to, to just, to just not quit. And, you know, things get hard. Just, just don't quit. Well said. Love it. Any other parting words you'd like to leave the listener with? No, I just, uh, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity. So I, I would just challenge everyone to um, look at the different things that, that they could be grateful for in their life and, when you focus on those instead of the, the bad things, life seems like turns out being pretty good. That's great. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I've had a, between yesterday's um, kind of pre-chat and today, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you and uh, October unpaved in Pennsylvania. Uh, let's go do it together. I think it'd be a great race to do. Oh, that sounds cool. I was looking at it yesterday. Yeah, cool. I might have on that, Troy. Thank awesome, you. Man. Yeah. Thank you. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed it. That is the show. More people racing more often, having more fun in the process is the mission of Athlinks. Thanks again to Eric McElvaney for coming on the show and sharing his successes along the way. The best way to support this podcast is to be sure to click subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify to be notified of new shows. And just please take three minutes to give us a quick uh, five-star rating and a quick review on iTunes. So we do a special post for each episode on Instagram. So look for the post for episode 22 with a very handsome picture of Eric. If you have any comments or questions, we are at Athlinks or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide to help spread the word. And until next time, happy racing, everybody. Mm-hmm.